The Guardian. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Jewish. In this month's podcast, we take on the really big question. Is God a woman? We speak to American comedian Iris Barr about Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David and edible underwear. And get your tent pegs and sleeping bag ready. Yes, because Jewish Glastonbury is on its way. But do Jews really camp? I think the best camping for Jews is glamping. Glamorous camping, five-star camping, a nice yurt with room service. Shalom, shalom. Keeping me company in my yurt in the studio are Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner and comedy writer Ivor Badil. Welcome to you both. Rabbi Laura, thanks so much for, for coming in. Uh, like a bit of camping? I do like camping. I do. In fact, we're going for our 20th anniversary to the Big Chill, where my daughter is camping and we're going to a hotel. Calm. <laughs> for my mum, the Big Chill was a cooler bag. That's about <laughs> as far as it got. Uh, Ivor, uh, welcome. Hello. Nice. Thank you very much for coming in. Lovely to be here. Today. Uh, are you a camper? Uh, well, I was very much in my youth with uh, Hubbardim, Hubbardim slash Draw. And this is, uh, this is um, a Jewish youth group that went camping. <laughs> oh, not a group, a movement. A movement. A Jewish youth movement, yes. Uh, yeah, we were, I went to, from the age of about eight. I seem to remember lying about my age because I think you had to be nine to join. Um, but I went every summer of two weeks. We were packed off to a summer camp under canvas, usually near Milton Keynes. Loved and, it. And that was camping it. under tents. Because I'm not talking about camp like the Americans used to go to the Catskills and they had no, houses. No. I'm talking to camping. This is a proper camp in a field, you know, under canvas, sleeping about 12 to a tent. Well, that's a very brief peek under the canvas of Jewish camping, and we'll return to that later. Uh, Rabbi Laura, apart from your normal rabbinical duties as rabbi of the Aylith Gardens Reform Synagogue up there in North London, in Temple Fortune, no less, one of my favourite places, you're also spurring the movement on because you've brought out a new Reform Siddur. That's the prayer book that we use in synagogue every time we pray. Uh, this is the normal Reform prayer book, isn't it, that some of us grew up with? I know I did. Uh, it's had a new makeover by the look of it, and you've been spearheading this. Oh, no, I'm just one of the rabbis involved in it. Uh, and when they did most of the work on the editorial committee, I was a student rabbi, so I'm just involved in teaching it, using it, leading from it. Is it in currency now? Is it available? It's in currency. I bought two editions. The, this is the version we use in... Uh, synagogue and at home and a lot of it is meant also to be used at home we're trying to say to people you know judaism is not just kind of tick the box in a shawl thing so they've got the, what, what we should do on shabbat on friday night for exactly friday night at home blessing for kids at night so you could really take this and get jewish life much more independently the last one was when 77 so it's changed since then yeah absolutely. since 19 1977. So, I mean, that's still only 30-odd 30, uh, 30 years. My maths is right. So, great. But um, why was one felt, why felt it needed updating So in that 30 years? Um, the world's changed so much. Gender language has changed a lot. People aren't willing to say things they don't believe. They, don't, they want to talk about God differently, not just God. You know, you asked at the beginning, is God a woman? So, of course, that's, you know, no, God is not a woman and God is not a man. And it's belittling to think of God in those terms. And people wanted to talk about God in terms that they talk in the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And when things are led by women, just as they are by men, it seems really strange to just keep on saying he, the Lord, the master, in that way, the king. 
rather than in non-specific gender language. Let's dive in and get some examples. I mean, you talked about the non-gender specific, and I suppose mm. that, you know, non-genderising God is probably the most major uh, mm. decision you've made, I suppose. Uh, what, so what do, we, what do we call him, she? So God is in this either you, you know, if we're referring you or ruler or almighty or eternal life. And what it does is it pushes you away from your specific, oh, God is king, idea. Mm-hmm. And it forces you to think, well, actually, what is helpful for me? It's not helpful for me to say I'm praying to the Lord, but it's helpful to me, Laura, to say I'm praying to a force of life. Because I think, yes, force of life. I like that fits a theology that I can bring into my life. So instead of saying uh the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The translation is, here, Israel, the eternal is our God, the eternal is one. It does strike me that this is the, this is the controversial one. This will have a lot of people up in arms and sort of saying, but, but God is, we, we have a very traditional picture of God, uh, especially in Judaism. We have a very, um, although I defy any words, I haven't seen a good picture of God for ages. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, I think people are more, you know, it, it matches people's level of sophistication that they know God is not the chap in the sky. Mm. And we know that we did a poll before the Siddur came out about sexism in religion, saying that six out of ten people think that religion is sexist. And then we asked the question, well, what about God language? And actually, between the ages of 18 to 25, only 18% said they wanted the he, male God language. People want who are living now want language that makes sense for how we, we come into this room, two men and a woman, we, you treat us the same way, you expect exactly the same from me as from you to deliver in the same way a man and a woman. So that's the kind of imagery that makes sense when we pray. There's always seemed to me uh, a sort of inherent sexism in the United Synagogues and the the mainstream Judaism, really, there's the separation. And women don't take services and girls don't take part. That's where I'm sort of saying you're addressing communities really strongly, no, no matter how modern they are, still believe in sitting apart from the women lest they get... Distracted from prayer, yeah. From prayer, which, um, but all I remember was whenever I went to the United Synagogue, I was very distracted by looking up all the time. (laughs) Yes, my parents had, used to have a wonderful thing where they would wave at each other. They were placed very carefully. Dad was downstairs, Mum was upstairs, and they would wave and they would do five, five minutes. We're out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And I think uh, the separation between men and women is not equal separation, it's Mm. hierarchical separation. It's not like you're on equal side. It's not just that men and women sit separately in an orthodox and you know, women can't leave services. Isn't it in the UK, in the United Synagogues? But the orthodox community would argue that actually women, you know, are revered and play a very, very special role. Yes. You know, so, so, you know, how, how do you answer that? It's fine if people said women are special, they're the pearl if you let the pearl shine. But if you keep the pearl in a case, nothing's happening. Mm, my father, for example, has problems. Uh, he doesn't mind women rabbis, but he doesn't like them wearing the big kippah and, the, and the, he doesn't really like them wearing talit. This is the, 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 the scarf that, uh, that you wear in, in a prayer shawl uh, in, um, in, in synagogue. He has a bit of a problem with that. The mm. whole, the whole, I think they look gorgeous. I think they look really nice on women. I Much think better. this is really not what they look like, but what does it feel like to pray with a talit on? And does that, can you argue it halachically, legally? Yes, you can, I would say. And secondly, what is it like to pray with a talit and what does it do to your prayer? Uh, and and is it for someone's father to tell me whether or not I can wear one? Sorry, with no, all respect. No, no, I always tell you to shut up. <laughs> I would never say that to your father. <laughs> um, and, th- and thirdly, um, so you can argue it religiously. It's not really for someone else to say what's good for women. And I think there is a visceral thing where people see women in tully tot. It's very hard for them. 
And again, I would say, you know, what's going on? Who's keeping the badge of honour, mm. the badge of power here? You know, what's wrong with a woman wearing a tallit if, if that's Judaism? I must tell you that, in fact, it's not me that tells my father to shut up. It's my mum that tells my father to shut up, which proves, after all, that God has always been a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you may remember her playing the ultra-Orthodox woman opposite Larry David in the cult comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm, but American comedian and actor Iris Barr has many more strings to her bow. Director, neuropsychologist and former life working in Israeli intelligence. You know, my daughter, the neuropsychologist Mossad agent. But you do have a chance to see Iris Barr performing in London as the Jewish Community Centre for London are bringing her over here for a one-show only in July. She'll be performing her one-person show, Die, or in our uh, set in a vibrant Tel Aviv cafe only moments before a suicide bomber enters. Our reporter in New York, Suzanne Snyder, caught up with Iris Barr and started off by asking her how she came to star in Curb Your Enthusiasm. I auditioned. Uh, I auditioned for the show like any other show. I, I got a call and um, they said, "Be." it was like an hour later and you're an Orthodox Jewish girl. Uh, and that's all I knew. You don't really know anything about anything. And I had, you know, as a kid, I, I grew up, I, my mom, who's very secular, put, threw me into an Orthodox Jewish school because she wanted me to learn Hebrew. It's not an easy double life to lead. You know, I always talk about, talk about in my book how, you know, I'd always wanted to go to shul with the kids and my mom would take me to the Guggenheim and I'd have to lie to everybody at school just to be accepted. It was like a double life I was leading. And I went to an audition and Larry was there and all the producers were there and all I got was a thin sheet of paper that said, your Orthodox Jewish girl that gets stuck on a ski lift with Larry David, you have to be out of there by sundown. And we just improvised. And they loved it and I booked the job and then we improvised some more. I mean, nothing is, absolutely nothing is written. You don't know anything else what's going on in the episode. When he pulled out these edible underwear, I had no idea what, what was going on. I only realized when I watched the actual episode is the only time I realized. All right, so I wondered if you could tell listeners about your show that's about to open in London. Yes. Uh, the show is called Die, which means enough in Hebrew. I play 11 different characters in a cafe in Tel Aviv moments before a suicide bomber enters. I kind of cover a vast range of not only Israeli uh, types, but also some international characters that find themselves in this cafe in Tel Aviv for various reasons. I lived in Israel and in New York. I grew up in both places. So I was um, familiar with many characters and, you know, I don't like to say stereotypes because they're more archetypes. I mean, there is this Israeli expat that lives in New York that's married to Moti from Moti's limousines, and that's what she is. And, you know, and I'm only in Israel to visit my, um, how do you say, my family. I don't want to be there. I'm happier here. It's crazy. It's crazy over there. It's too much. It's too much. Um, <laughs> uh, then we have Shuli. Um, I live in the West Bank. I'm a settler, obviously. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, but I moved to Israel um, many years ago. Uh, I have nine children. And uh, I'm tired. I'm tired of it all. I'm tired of being, you know, I think we're being sold out. I think we're being sold out by, by Jewish traders that, that uh, they kind of think they can negotiate our land. And it's not negotiable. Despite the title, there's a lot of humor in the show, um, despite the subject matter, actually, um, because obviously these characters don't know they're going to die, and so they have these stories to tell, and it's basically my attempt or desire to humanize um, people in Israel, humanize that side of the conflict. Um, there's no distinct political agenda. It's not a polemic. Uh, these people are just sharing their stories, and sadly, they all find their demise this cafe, the bombing. So we kind of experience them and then the loss of them. Uh, I ran in New York off Broadway for on and off for about a year and a half. Uh, I was invited to perform at the United Nations. I did it there in front of over 100 ambassadors and delegates, which was unbelievable. 
And can you tell me a little bit about the process creating the piece? It, from, I, I already, always knew I wanted to write a show about a suicide bombing. I think I was sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv and this, this person walked in and I was sure he was a bomber and my heart just stopped. And you, you know, there was a time in Israel not that long ago where you'd sit in cafes and you'd feel that all the time. People would still go out, but you'd have this kind of pit in your stomach of, you know, you, who's going to enter and what's going on and you're kind of hypervigilant. And I was sitting in L.A. at a coffee shop and things are extremely anti-Israel, you know, over the years, especially amongst more liberal artsy communities and people were kind of attacking me about Israel and I said you know you have no idea what it's what it's like to sit in a coffee shop and be worried and I said you know let me let me create a piece that theatrical piece that really kind of lets people enter this world and and realize what it's like to sit under constant tension because you know this bombing happens 11 times during the show it's very jarring people don't know when it's coming and they kind of sit there uncomfortable it's not unbearable I didn't you know I'm not there to abuse but I'm there to kind of create this tension and I think that People really got a sense of what it was like to to sit in this coffee shop and not know, you know, when this character in front of them is going to die. There she is, Iris Barr. She'll be performing on the 16th of July at the Jerwood Vanborough Theatre at RADA in central London. See our website for more details. Ivor, are you a big fan of Kirby and Enthusiasm? I don't know if you know that episode. She's on the ski lift. Uh, they're getting hungry. They're stuck there. Sundown is coming, so presumably Shabbat is coming, and so she can't sit next to Larry, so she has to kind of either jump and they're hungry and he's got some edible underwear. You know those their episodes, they always link, so there's, there's always a, a, a MacGuffin, if you like. Um, I'm a huge fan, though. <laughs> Sadly, I haven't seen that episode. It uh, is amazing. How, how Jewish it is. I mean, the yeah. Jew, Jewishness forms almost the main joke every week of this very successful sitcom. Yes, but I was thinking about this. It's kind of it's non-self-consciously Jewish. This, it, I was trying to think of the best way of describing it. And it's, it's you know, George from uh, Seinfeld, mm. which obviously Larry David was heavily involved in. You know, it, he, I don't think he probably ever acknowledges that openly that he's Jewish, but the fact that he's so neurotic you know, he is, is incredibly Jewish without it actually ever being said. So I think in, in a similar way, I mean, Larry David does do it slightly more overtly. Is it is it better for Jews or worse for Jews that they make the, the comedy like that? Oh, I think it's better for Jews. I mean, the fact that people think Jews are very funny has got to be a good thing. And also, I, you know, I, I don't think... God, that's the best way of saying this. Um, <laughs> your average non-Jew particularly sees it as a very Jewish comedy. I don't think, you know, other than a sort of comedy intelligentsia, who will talk about it and obviously know that, oh, it's got a whole history of vaudeville and Catskill Mountains and this is where we've ended up sort of thing. But other than that sort of comedy intelligentsia, I think just people just think, this is very funny. It's because we are very funny people. <laughs> We're very no, lucky But I don't that. think they, you know, we, we know it as a sort of, it's infused with Jewishness without necessarily being overtly Jewish, other than certain moments. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a secular Jewish thing. I mean, he often, he's often going to synagogue and he's trying to buy black market tickets on the, for, for, for the High Holy Day services and the black market scalping yeah. outside. I mean, uh, Rabbi Laura is, is laughing. Oh, I wish I had people that keen who were buying black market High Holy Day tickets. <laughs> I love that idea. Can I just say on yeah, this, I mean, what I saying... love about the American comedies that bring Judaism in is it's such a different view, a non-diaspora view of being Jewish, which isn't always looking on your shoulder and worrying about what they say. But actually, what's so wonderful about all the jokes and the language mm. coming through American sure. uh, sitcoms is how out they are about being Jewish. And for my children, it's very liberating. My son loves, adores comedy. And he always loves the fact he doesn't ever worry about being Jewish. And I think that there's a message about Jewish, being Jewish and Jewish comedy in the States. Fantastic. They always, uh, Seinfeld always did it, and Larry David does it. The, the rabbis often the butt of the jokes, though. They always were breaking yeah. 
yes, that's always a little distasteful. Because <laughs> the rabbi was like, <laughs> oh, Elaine, you will learn one day that the wax can walk to the water, but he cannot always talk. That kind of thing. I <laughs> think we are up for being teased. It's completely fine. The rabbis generally are quite funny. I'm... I'm I'm very ashamed to say this, but I think one of my grandparents' funeral, me, me and my brothers, but you know, burst into hysterics because the rabbi constantly, he couldn't not speak in that sort of rabbi's way. So everything he said was a little bit like this, even if he was saying hello, you know, it was like he was dovening the whole time. It was just very funny. They are funny. <laughs> you, are, you are funny. It's good, you know, that's fine. I mean, we want to be funny. We're not going to be boring as hell, do we? God, no. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, Ivor, you as a Jewish comedy writer here in the UK, yeah. there's obviously not such an audience. I mean, you could write a nice Jewish sitcom, but, you know, 300 people would understand it, maybe. I've been involved in three attempts to get a Jewish sketch show off the ground. But? Um, <laughs> well, but What's yeah. it called, a kvetch show? Oh, what was it? Oh, I think the last one was something called Not Not Quite Kosher or something like that. It went for a very bland title. We went through an awful lot of titles. The the best title we had was uh, From the People Who Brought You Jesus. <laughs> just thought, <laughs> good, that's good. I know, we loved it. But you know what? In, in that particular incarnation of it, there was a huge argument, a huge discussion about, well, yes, it's very funny, but we can't send it like that because it's bound to offend some commission editor. And I think that's in the end we went for the sort of Not Strictly Kosher type thing. And they were know. all Jewish based. I mean, because goodness gracious well, me, obviously broke through that kind of ethnic barrier. And uh, did it brilliantly and made stars of uh, of, of its uh, of its um, kind of main writers. Um, and you wonder why that quite hasn't. We've been here for much longer than the Indian. Well, community. no, but that's another huge argument. I mean, we spent all the time arguing. That was a huge argument. Some people say no, all the sketches have got to be very very Jewish. Other people say no, they haven't. And and we kind of didn't really resolve that. This is probably asking you a very difficult question, and it's going to be my final one on, on this section. Did you have a very good UK specific Jewish joke? Did I? Yeah. A UK did specific one. <laughs> Don't well, feel actually, under any pressure. Well, this is actually this isn't the UK, but what I thought was the best in the first Jewish sketch show attempt to get it off the ground, we had it isn't going to translate on radio, but what we had was a, a, a version of the Jewish hucker. You know the New Zealand rugby team? They do that, that thing, they dance before, and we had a Jewish version of that. And what we did, we went out on the street and we took photos of all of us, right, sort of shrugging our shoulders, going, oi, uh, 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 like this. And actually, I thought the photos were hilarious. <laughs> you know, but someone at Channel 4 didn't think so. <laughs> it's not going to scare the opposition, though. It's, it's, it's certainly scare not. them into bargaining with you. <laughs> You're giving us some food, maybe. <laughs> the Jewish hacker uh, is about as far as we got with uh, Not Strictly Kosher. Uh, but uh, Ivor Badil, uh, thank you for your uh, for giving us a gem, an unpublished gem. You're very uh, welcome. Of UK Jewish comedy. You might have camped at Glastonbury. You're heading to Wiltshire for your annual WOMAD fix. You may even be ending the long summer festival circuit in Edinburgh for a festival of the mind too. But what about a summer festival that combines both music and culture and spirituality, all with a Jewish twist? Then make sure you add Limudfest to your diary, a four-day festival in the Peak District, taking place over the bank holiday August weekend. Building on the incredible success of Limud, a week-long winter conference of debate and discussion, you can now take in a lecture on Israeli politics one minute, followed by some Torah yoga another. On earth is that? And ending it all with a performance of Sephardi music long into the night. But make sure you take your thermos and portable stove, because there ain't no five-star accommodation on offer just camping in the open air. Now, hold on, do Jews actually do that? Sounds Jewish caught up with some of the organisers behind Limud Fest and started off by asking founder Micah Gold how it all began. 
Limudfest came about over a period of three or four years. I was more kind of WOMAD or the big chill or even reggae festivals down in, in, in Brighton and, and things like that. And, and I suppose it was just that, that idea that, you know, people uh, talking to each other, people out in the outdoors, people listening to music, people relaxing um, and, and trying to bring more of that spirit into Limud. I, I just kind of sensed that there was a market for it and that, you know, it, it would probably, even though Limud is already the conference in the, in the winter is a huge variety of things for people to do, it's still kind of a formal learning environment. And I just had this sense that if we took it more informal, more outdoors, more environment, more music, but still held the Limud values and learning at the core of it, uh, actually we could uh, reach a whole new group of people. The other thing that was kind of unique about festivals was, you know, you go to a festival, you take your tent, you camp, and you're, and you're hanging out with all the people around the campsite, and that, you know, gives you a real sort of communal experience. And the, the, the reality in the Jewish community is, is, you know, Jews are not synonymous with camping. Uh, Jews are more, more, more akin to and known for going to five-star hotels. Uh, and this idea that actually we could be grown-ups, we could go camping, uh, kind of brings back almost that real halutzik youth movement ideal, if you like, you know, let's all camp again. Why should we just stop when we're 21? And why should we stop sort of doing things together as a community in the outdoors with, you know, with our families? My name is Amanda Lee, and with Deborah Brooks, we're co-chairing this year's Limited Fest. When you first arrive on the site, I suppose the first thing you'll do is you'll see a number of tents. So there's probably like 150 tents and people milling around trying to put them up. And because it's all volunteer-led, there's plenty of volunteers there to help. There'll be definitely some music and some chill-out activities in the background and perhaps some people taking you on a site tour. When participants arrive, they're given a handbook with approximately 150 sessions in that they can choose over the four days that we're at Limit Fest. So this year, we've divided it into performance, social action, culture, Torah, Israel and recreational. In the performance area, obviously, we have the massively famous The Apples, so they're the Israeli funk band. On an Israeli theme, we've also got Smadar Levi, who sings in Arabic and Ladino and about coexistence of Jews and Arabs and about peace projects that come in, and she has the most beautiful voice. I think one of the beauties of Limud in a way is that you know we there's almost this culture of we learn by day and we party by night you know we kind of enter the event on, on Friday afternoon we go straight into Shabbat but of course over Shabbat none of the, none of the sound equipment's on none of the lights and all, all, all that kind of stuff so when Shabbat goes out after a wonderful have Dallas ceremony usually in the outdoors with everybody suddenly all the electric comes back on and, and of course the, the, the you know there are concerts there are, there are there are DJs there are all sorts of stuff going on Limudfest has really been one of those creative incubators. So Tanya Winston and friends of hers came to Limudfest, were already doing DJing and stuff like that. They got together and they created a whole new sound and they started something called Ghetto Plots that now gigs around London. It's just a chance to sort of get a real injection of uh, Jewish enthusiasm and energy uh, from a whole variety of people. And I think that, yeah, it really does do something different for us. At 
And if you fancy going along to Limudfest, see the Sounds Jewish page for more details. Laura, are you a Limudlik? I have been a Limudlik, absolutely, both in the winter and in the summer. Um, and Limudfest is fabulous. It is a very nice chilled uh, four days. Uh, it was quite chilled at night, actually. <laughs> I bet it was. So you, do you put the tent up? Uh, either you put the tent up or you or you get help. No, I meant you. Oh, you You mean... You, Rabbi Laura. Rabbi Laura, who's very egalitarian, whose husband put the tent up. That's the one. That's it. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yes. Good. Does he do... Do, do, uh, do you have a tabernacle? Maybe a rabbi should get a tabernacle. <laughs> and there's a tabernacle area yeah, of rabbis. That's why I went to. The blacks, there's a lot of rabbis like, like crowding around the tabernacle. Yeah, no, Limwood Fest is great and the camping side is excellent because part of the Limud philosophy is that all different kinds of Jews are together and there is something very equalising about when you've got Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews and secular Jews and culturals and the whole kabang of Jews both you know, struggling with their tent next to each other and it's very family-ish and the kids are running around from tent to tent and my kids used to know, you know, would be, who were very, you know, were younger at that time, you know, we'd make friends and they'd hang out in their friends' tents. It's, it's a very lovely thing. It, it does sound like one of your lost sketches, Ivan, Jews <laughs> go camping. Uh, do, but you, you're actually quite good at putting your tent up yourself. No, I never said that. <laughs> right. Oh, God, no, I'm hopeless. <laughs> so <laughs> how, well, how, how do you go camping? That? I, don't, I don't go camping no, because no. the sheer embarrassment, the Jacques Tati-like <laughs> embarrassment of being overtaken Jacques by Tati. an innate... It's in an object. Oh, no, 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 the thought of putting up the tent horrifies me. When I was at school, we had to join the, the cadets, or whatever it was, which is a fairly un-Jewish thing to do, but it was a non-Jewish non public school. We had to join the cadets, and we were supposed to go camping one night in the in Aylesbury on some exercise. And I, me and another Jewish boy, the only other Jewish boy in my in my regiment, we, we were sharing a tent. So all the, all the others were clucking and hucking with their pegs and putting the tent up. We tried a bit, and it kept falling down, and we just said, in the end, we just used it as a massive sheet and put it over our heads to <laughs> Morning. I just think it is one of the prevailing stereotypes about Jews that we're not made for camping. I think it's in our genes that we're an urban people, not a rural one. We went to find out what some other people thought. The non-Jewish boyfriends were the only people with whom I could consider going camping uh, because they were able to do it. They knew what ground sheets were, primer stoves, billy cans, whereas my Jewish partner, with whom I now live, knows nothing. I think the best camping for Jews is glamping. Glamorous camping, five-star camping, a nice yurt with room service. I think there's a strong argument for the fact that our people lived in tents for over 2,000 years and why would we want to go on holiday in one now? I suppose I do buck the trend in the sense that I'm a builder and I love camping and I'm Jewish. The food isn't good enough. It's not good enough having baked beans, warm baked beans. So we're probably living on bread and butter and Marks and Spencer sandwiches. A lot of my experiences of camping come from my dad, who's an Israeli army man. And um, one of a very early experience at the age of about seven was um, going and um, trekking up Mount Sinai and sleeping overnight in the mountains. I think it goes to the heart of the divide within the Jewish community, actually. I think the left wing of the community will camp from the Jewish youth movements, the left-wing Jewish youth movements, and people who identify with the early Zionists, who have got that kind of, you know, closeness to the land, I think they will camp. Whereas the right-wingers, the conservatives, oh no, they want their hotel in Elat with a swimming pool and somebody changing their sheets every day, please. Thank you very much. I was brought up northwest under wishy-washy reform, so we didn't go five so we didn't go camping. The, the concession we made to it, we went self-catering. Self-catering. That's not so bad. That's not so bad. You, you didn't have to build the flat yourself. <laughs> no, we didn't. But you had to clean it sometimes. They didn't have a maid service all the time. hardship. When you're putting up a tent, is there a brocha, we should be saying? Is there a blessing? Matovu o halecha Yaakov. 
Look how good your tents are, Jacob. Wow. Did Jacob put them up? Was he? I bet he could put up a tent. He could. Well, he was more brain, Jacob. Uh, the, Esau could probably put up the tent. <laughs> the, other, the other thing I need to know is about going to the loo, because that's the thing about mm. camping. That's the main thing. For me, uh, it's, a, it's a very crucial part of my day, I have to say. In Hubbard in Draw Camps, right, they used to dig these huge... Do you remember this? These huge, huge pits. We had chemical toilets from the 70s. They used to dig these huge, huge pits and just throw all the detritus in there. Uh, and, and honestly, I can't tell you if the health and safety people have been there. There was one year where a, a girl from mm. Birmingham fell in. Oh, into this oh. No, honestly, I promise you, this is oh, absolutely true. Terrible. Thank God she was fine. But you know, it's such a hazard. So when you say have been in, we're being a Jewish movement. It really was like a. Oh yeah, the movement <laughs> side. Yes, we say. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, there was a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all we have time for in this month's Sounds Jewish. My huge thanks to my guests, Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner of Aylith Gardens and Ivor Badil of Crouch End. Crouch End indeed. Very good. And to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. We're taking our summer break now. Even we have to take a few days off sometime. They're not sure I'll be camping. Lying on a beach is more my thing. We'll be back again in September fresh and ready to go. From me, Jason Solomons, until then, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.